Father, I want to thank you for mercy and for grace. Lord, that you have a plan for each and every one of us, and, and uh, you, you open doors to lead us in our lives. And whether it's um, you know, to sacrifice our life for our spouse and our family, or, uh, Lord, to be bold in, our, in the world and the community at our jobs, Lord, you, you have a valuable plan for each and every one of us. And Lord, I pray that you would help us to surrender to that plan, to give you honor and glory and remember that we've been bought with a price and that price was the very blood of Jesus. Help us to stay close to that fact, to you in a personal, close relationship, intimacy with you. I pray all these things in Jesus' name. And Lord God, we ask that you would open your scriptures to our hearts to help us understand what they would mean, and, and, and give us a, a real uh, important and, and, and real nugget to hold on to today. In your name we pray. Amen. Amen. Uh, are, are humans mean for keeping dogs on leashes? <clears throat> PETA? Did you just yell PETA? <laughs> I, I, I don't keep my dog on a leash to eat it. <laughs> Our <laughs> uh, bosses mean for keeping their new employees on a leash, and, and that's you know that's <laughs> you know uh, our kindergarten. Te- obviously, that one's metaphorical. There's not they're not keeping their employees on real leashes. Neither is this next one. Our kindergarten teachers mean for keeping their class on a short leash. Like uh, obviously, I'm not talking about ropes and around their neck. <laughs> That was a way better illustration in my head. Yeah, those, I thought about those. No, they're, they're not mean. It's good to keep uh, people or even animals on a short leash until they can remember the important things, the important details of life. Um, it's, it's protection, it's safety, it's security. And, uh, and we're going to see today that God kind of he puts the children of Israel on a, on, a, on a leash. Not a physical leash, obviously, but he, he provides something towards the end of our study today that is going to keep them close to him. And every time that, that they start to venture out away from the Lord, away from depending humbly upon him, he's going to just, hey, hey, get back here, get back here. And it's not because he doesn't love them, it's because he cherishes them more than anything in the world. When I'm walking with my, uh, my kids, you know, uh, one time we went to the Grand Canyon. Anyone been to the Grand Canyon? I don't know why it's so popular. It's the scariest place in the whole universe. I hate the Grand Canyon. And yeah, it's sure fun to look at, but when you're hiking along the like, ridge and it's like a mile straight down to certain death, and your children just love to just push each other everywhere they go. That's all your kid, my kids do. I got six boys, and, and they're just constantly, give me, you know, you know, it's half your fault, but um, just kidding. <laughs> you know, we, as we were walking along these edges, all that was playing through my mind the whole time was one of my children falling, and, and it was just horrible, and my anxiety level was like really high, and I was like, can we just be done? I can't stand this anymore. 
Oh. And so what did I do? How did I act the whole time we were there? Dana, do you remember? Yeah. <laughs> so if you don't know, <laughs> some, one of us struggles with anxiety, and it's usually not me. So I, I generally am like totally chill with anything. But on that day, I was like welcomed into the world of, of people who struggle with anxiety. And I was like, get over here. Get, you, get in line. Stop. Don't touch. Don't bother each other. I was just filled with this anxiety. Well, I don't know how that applies, but... <sighs> I wanted, I wanted my kids on a leash. I, I, wish that, I wanted them to stay close to me, right? I wanted them right there. I wanted them to stay close until I knew that they would remember all the important things. I wanted them to stay close until I knew they would remember all the important things. So let's get to our text because I am a mess. Exodus chapter 13, uh, we begin here. It says, The Lord said to Moses, Dedicate every, to me, every firstborn among the Israelites, the first offspring to be born, both of humans and animals, belongs to me. So God tells Moses that he owns every firstborn, both animals and humans. And the firstborn in that world, in that culture, represented the best of the people. It represented actually all the people. He's saying, uh, I own you guys now. Now, what has just happened? God just got them freed from Egypt. They've just left. And the first thing God does is he says, now I own you. I own you. Well, that's so mean, God. What do you mean you own me? You're not the boss of me. My wife says that. We say that to each other all the time. You're not the boss of me. Well, yes, God is actually the boss of the Israelites right now. And of course, this is applicable to us as well. So the firstborn represents all the people. They carried the names of their family. They carried the wealth of their families. They were in charge of their families. It passed all through the firstborn. They represented their families. They were responsible for their families. Um, quote here I found, it says, Israel had been saved through this, the destruction of Israel's firstborn, and now they were required to dedicate their own firstborn as a constant memorial of their deliverance. So this is the first time we see the word remember, or the idea of remember, and we're going to see it lots of times today. It's a very important idea for what we're studying today, remembering. Re who's got a good memory? <laughs> All right, who's got a, hor uh, a medium memory? And who's got a bad memory? Okay. Yeah. What was I just talking about? Yeah. <laughs> I have a, a midland to fair terrible memory, and, and my wife is giving me eyes right now. Like, yeah. No, it, it, yeah. Remembering is hard for us. It is hard, and God knows that. He, he's created you. He knows your, your weaknesses and your tendencies, and so he's got no problem giving you helps, giving you things that will help you to remember. And so he, the first thing he's going to give us today is, uh, is this idea of you dedicating your firstborn to the Lord. So God will deliver you from uh, all that you need delivered from. He's got no problem being your deliverer. But he wants you to remember all that he's done for you as the basis for your relationship for him. He never wants us to be, wake up one morning and be like, why do I go to church again? Why, why do I um, 
deny myself of fleshly lusts and, and do as God directs in the word? Why do I do that? He wants it to be a continual reminder that we're in relationship with him. Why? Because he delivered us. He redeemed us. He has saved us. And that will fade away. The, the, the first day you get saved, we're all super probably excited. You know, you just can hardly imagine how anything could be greater than the fact that the burden of your sin has been lifted off your shoulders. You know, it's a wonderful, wonderful day. But as time goes on, you start to get comfortable with that life of like, okay, I know I'm not going to hell, right? And I trust in Jesus. I'm not going to stop believing in Jesus. So I know I'm going to trust. I'm, gonna, I'm, gonna, I'm forgiven. But we forget that there's so much more that follows that. And God is calling us to come out to the wilderness to serve him. And if we forget the relationship, the, the way that that began, we can, so, we can so often be like, ah, but it's easier in Egypt than it is to go out into the desert and not know where my food's coming from, not know where my water's coming from, not know what's going on, and to have to live by faith. That's, that's kind of difficult, and so I'd rather just stay in Egypt. God, he wants us to remember the original state that we were in. He didn't need your help to save you, right? He delivered you. All you did was call upon him in faith. He doesn't need your help to save you now. He does, however, make a claim upon your life. In Galatians 2.20, it says, It's no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. And the life which I now live, I live by what? Faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. He's saying, I don't live my own life with my own plans and my own dreams and my own ambitions. Maybe when you got saved, you didn't realize that's the deal you were making. Okay, God, I'm going to give you all of my sin and all of my life and all of my failings and I'm going to give that to you and then you're going to forgive me and then I'm going to do whatever I want. I'm going to still continue with my plans to be a banker or to be a, you fill in the blank. And God says, no, that's not the deal. The deal is I take all your sin, I, I free you completely from any, anything that you had uh, holding you captive, and in turn, you are my servant, you are my son, and you will do as I say forever. And you will find meaning and value and love and acceptance in all of that, and you will be, even be rewarded for serving me. But don't get it wrong. Don't forget that you are still my servant. I have bought you with a price. It's no longer your life. It's no longer your decisions. 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 20 says, For you were bought at a price. Therefore glorify God in your body and in your spirit, which are God's. So God says, not only how you behave on the outward in your body and who you are your body with and all the body stuff, everything you're actually doing. But he says, even in your heart, that belongs to me. Your motives, I want your motives. I want it all. And I bought it. And it's not up to you to figure out the strength to do those things. I will give you that. I just, you just have to surrender it to me and say, here is everything. Here is my 
body. Here is my behavior. Here is my heart and what I want and what I long for. All of it I surrender to you. And that's what's being taught to us here in this dedication of the firstborn. And we're going to see it expanded now a little bit. So uh, continuing in our text, it says, So Moses said to the people, This is a day to remember forever. There's our word remember again. The day you left Egypt, the place of your slavery. Today the Lord has brought you out by the power of his mighty hand. Remember Eat no food containing yeast. On this day in early spring, in the month of Abib, you have been set free. You must celebrate this event in this month each year after the Lord brings you into the land of the Canaanites, Hittites, Amorites, Hivites, and Jebusites. He swore to your ancestors that he would give you this land, a land flowing with milk and honey. For seven days, the bread you eat must be made without yeast. And on the seventh day, celebrate a feast to the Lord. Eat bread without yeast during those seven days. In fact, there must be no yeast, bread, or yeast at all found within the borders of your land during this time. So yeast represents what in the Bible? Sin, right. And so bread that is free of yeast speaks of a life that is free of sin. A victorious Christian life. He's saying here a pure life. A life that is set aside for God. Romans 6.14 is a good verse to bring in at this time. Because it says, Romans 6.14, that for sin shall not have dominion over you, for you're not under the law, but under grace. So in a life of grace, when you're living, receiving God's grace in your life, sin cannot dominate you. It can't have dominion over you, the Bible says. But look at the order very carefully of what we see in, in, in our text we just read uh, during of the feast. He says you have to have Passover first. You have to kill the lamb first. And its blood has to be your focus. And you eat the lamb, speaking of fellowship with Jesus, receiving what Jesus has done to you. You eat the lamb. All of it, all gone in that one night. You believe what Jesus has done for you in his blood. Then, after you come to Jesus in that way, you have a pure life. After Passover, there's seven days of unleavened bread. Seven is the number of completion in the Bible or perfection. He's saying if you can trust in Jesus and fellowship with Jesus, abide in Jesus, that is the key to a pure life. Now, am I saying you should all live sinless lives and every time you sin, uh, you're, 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 what am I trying to say? Every time you sin, um, uh, you're totally messing this up? Well, no, you're going to sin, right? But God has made allowance and he's made protection for that by his blood and we can confess our sin and return back to him and God never, you never lose rank as a Christian. My, my boys and I play this video game and if you do poorly, you, you lose a rank, right? And, uh, and, and God, that's not how it works with God. When we fail... He still loves us. We're still in perfect position with him if 
we will turn to him in humility and confess that sin to the Lord and say, Lord, I was wrong. Forgive me. And that is staying in that perfect relationship with Christ. But we all want to see more purity in our life. We all want to see more fruit in our life. Why can't I get the fruit in my life that I want to produce? Why am I still struggling with this sin or that sin? It's because there's only one way. There's only, there are no shortcuts. It is simply by Jesus Christ. If, if you're struggling with the internal desire to sin, and we all do, it just means we need more of Jesus in our hearts and in our lives. We need to go back to the Passover, remember what he did on the cross, eat it, That means consume it, take it inside us, let it become part of you, and it will do a a purifying work in our heart. I had a a brother this week call me, and he said, hey, I I would like you to be my accountability partner. You guys heard of that phrase? And uh, he said, "I've, I've got some sins in my life that I would like to eliminate. And I was on the phone with him, and I said, well... I, uh, I don't think accountability partners work for removing sin out of your heart. The Bible says that, that that's not the way. But I will get together with you every week and we can eat Jesus. We can look at what Jesus has done and through discipleship, we can fill up our mind and our heart with Jesus and that will have a natural effect of bringing purity into our life. And so I start with that brother this Monday. And that's what we should all be doing. You know, filling up our minds and hearts with Jesus and then passing that along, walking with other people beside us and saying, hey, let's get together and talk about Jesus and what he's done for me. And that's the goal. It's his work in you. Eating the Passover lamb for yourself. Taking his life and work inside you by faith and then depending on him in humility. And what does the Bible say this is like? It's a feast, he says. It's a party. It's a joyful celebration. Um, Sometimes there are believers who look like uh, Eeyore. You remember Eeyore? Always down in the dark. It's a nice sunny day. I'm probably going to get a sunburn. <laughs> like they can take anything and turn it around into why their life stinks. <laughs> They're gifted people. I don't understand how they can do that. But the joy of the Lord is supposed to be a constant thing in our lives. And when we're filling up our hearts with Jesus, what's one of the fruits of the Spirit? Joy. It is real. If we're not living with real, solid joy, I'm not talking about just being crazy party animal all the time. And I'm not talking about someone that ignores their circumstances and says, that's a bummer. But a real, just constant joy, if you don't have that, it, there is something wrong. And there needs more Jesus in you because Jesus says, when you are remembering this, when you're doing this on a consistent basis, It's going to be like a party, a feast, a rejoicing event in your life. All right, let's continue on in our text. On the seventh day, you must explain to your children, I am celebrating what the Lord did for me when I left Egypt. This annual festival will be a visible sign to you, like a mark branded on your head or your forehead. This is cool. 
Let it remind you always to recite this teaching of the Lord. With a strong hand, the Lord rescued you from Egypt. So observe the decree of the festival at the appointed time each year. This is what you must do when the Lord fulfills his promise he swore to you and to your ancestors. When he gives you, to, when he gives you uh, the land where the Canaanites now live. You must present all your firstborns and firstborn male animals to the Lord for they belong to him. A firstborn donkey may be bought back from the Lord by presenting a lamb or a goat in its place. But if you do not buy it back, you must break its neck. After, or however, you must buy back every firstborn son. You can't break their necks. <laughs> I just, that cracks me up. <laughs> he has to literally tell them, don't, this doesn't work for your kids too. You can't break their necks. Anyway. Um, and in the future, your children are asked, what does all this mean? And you will tell them with the power of his mighty hand, the Lord brought us out of Egypt, the place of our slavery. Pharaoh stubbornly refused to let us go. So the Lord killed all the firstborn males throughout the land of Egypt, both people and animals. And that is why I now sacrifice all the firstborn males to the Lord, except that the firstborn sons are always bought back. Why do you think he uses the word bought back. Because it's the word redemption. He, he, he's establishing a wonderful, perfect picture and image of what redemption is, what Jesus does for us. Sin had required that all the firstborn in Egypt die, even among the Israelites. But God said, for you guys, I love you, and I'm going to offer you a substitute in order to redeem you back, to buy you back. I'm going to pay the price. And he sets up this memorial so that they can pay the price. And it says, this ceremony will be like a mark branded on your hand or your forehead. It is a reminder of the power of the Lord's mighty hand brought to us, that brought us uh, out of Egypt. God is very concerned that his people remember his mighty hand bringing them out of Egypt. Why do you think? Why? Because we forget. It's a very simple answer. We always forget. We're very forgetful. Within a couple of days, they're going to forget. <laughs> We're going to see as we go through the story. It is not more than a couple of days and they're like, Aaron literally sells them on the fact that these golden calves delivered them from Egypt. These are the gods that took you out of Egypt. And all the people are like, okay. It's like, come on, guys. Literally, not even like, ugh, whatever. God says to remember this with a feast. It's not supposed to be a burden. It's a feast of remembering of the lamb in Passover followed by holy living. He says, if you remember Jesus, the lamb, and then you live a holy life, you know what's going to happen? Your kids are going to say, why are you so weird? No, they're going to ask you, what is this all about? Why are you always remembering this lamb? What is the purpose of this lamb? Why are you always talking about Jesus in your house? Why do you pray all the time? They're going to wonder that. And then they're going to see that, couple that with holy living where you don't do inappropriate things. You don't let your heart contemplate evil things your holy life, and your kids, by those two things alone, 
their heart is going to be stirred to seek the Lord. And it will give you a chance to explain it then. But I want you to watch and see how legalism can so quickly destroy God's plan that was intended to be simple and good and turn it into a legalistic burden. Check this out. Have you guys ever heard of phylacteries? You know what a phylactery is? You go to the doctor. No, just kidding. What? Nope. Nice try. Close. They're on rabbis, yeah. You're, you're like dancing around it. Nope. You you have another idea. Yeah, so you're getting you're you're getting there. So what they are is that they weren't necessarily big, but they would have a box about this big, okay? And they would tie it onto their forehead, and in this box they would have little ripped parts of the Torah, okay? So they read what we just read. And they're like, "Oh, it's supposed to be on our heads and on our hands." And so they not only have them on their foreheads, they have them on their hands. And so they have these boxes and then they have these long leather strips and they wrap them around their arms and they wrap them. And the more they wrap them, the more holy they are. Uh, it's true. And they wrap them around their head and they have this box on their head. And then they pray. And, and, and this became, it's like a huge burden. People are walking around with a box on their head and on their hand. When the Bible specifically, you probably saw the word like like you need to live this way and it will be like you have a, a symbol on your hand or a thing on your head, but it's the holy living and it's the trust in Jesus, the Lamb of God, that produced that. That was the whole goal and legalism destroys it and makes it an outward burden to bear, to bear and to carry. Do you guys see how that works? Whenever we let legalism come in, and we say, okay, so he said this, so what I need to do is X, Y, and Z, and let me come up with the way to do that. We've, we've lost track already. We've gotten off track already. The original intention was always, as we saw clearly, trust in the Lamb and live a holy life. And those two things are going to produce the effect that you want it to have. Because you know how hard it is for them to open up their phylacteries and read the tiny things that a Torah literally printed on something this small is what they do. And they, they're, to read that to someone out of a phylactery box is like stupid and impossible. It's not ministering to anyone. So instead, it was supposed to be this ministry to other people. And now it's just, look at me. I have a box on my head. Aren't I cool? And that is in, in truth what legalism makes us look like. Look at me. I have a box on my head. Aren't I cool? What? Outward appearances, right. Okay. So, when Pharaoh finally let the people go, 
God did not lead them along the main road that runs through Philistine territory. Even though that was the shortest route to the promised land. God said, if the people are faced with a battle, they may change their minds and return to Egypt. So, get this, God led them in a roundabout way through the wilderness toward the Red Sea. Thus, the Israelites left like an army ready for battle. Why would God lead them through this roundabout way towards a dead end that they've had no way out of? Wouldn't it just be easier to go the shortest route? Now, how many of you have said that regarding your relationship with God? I do not like the route we are on, God. I was supposed to get saved and then become a pastor. Nothing in between. I mean, it takes like two weeks for me to learn how to fake a Bible study. (laughs) That's true. Wouldn't it be just easier to go the shorter route? I mean, what if we just had a Bible college or a seminary that we could just send and everyone who came out was a guaranteed awesome pastor? That would be easy. But that's not the route that God chooses. So many times for your life and for my life, God chose the really difficult way. Why? If your goal was just to get somewhere, then yes, the shortest distance between two points is a, is a straight line, right? But unfortunately, God's goals are vastly different than ours. He does want to get us there, but he is so not concerned about how fast it takes to get there, how long it takes, how many twists and turns and dead ends and difficult times we have. He is just not concerned about that. In fact, he seems to enjoy putting random potholes in the road that we're traveling on. Doesn't it seem like? But if your goal is teaching your children to love and trust you, it might be better to go on a roundabout way. Because it just takes time sometimes to get your children to listen to you. God is more concerned with the state of their hearts, these children of Israel leaving Egypt, than their comfort or reaching a certain destination quickly. You know, in their mind, it's like, if we don't reach a destination, if we don't have a house, if I don't have all these things lined up, my life is not going to make sense and I am not going to be able to live because I just have to have things this way, this in this box, and and it has to work this way. And God's like, no, it doesn't. In fact... I'm going to free you from thinking that anything has to be anything except you and me together. That's all you need. You don't need anything else. Nothing else. Oh, but I have to have food. No, I'm going to take care of that too. If you stay close to me, I'm going to give you this crazy stuff called manna that we're going to learn about. Oh, but I have to have... We'll see. Nothing you can say is sufficient to say, so I, I, I don't need you, God. Everything, God's, our relationship with him is more important than everything. It seems like my life has been nothing but struggle ever since I came to know the Lord. You guys agree? Amen? Okay. No, you don't understand. I really feel like I took a wrong turn where somewhere, or God has even led me in a wrong direction. 
Well, what have you learned during all this difficult life of, of being a Christian that you're describing? Well, I still fail, and I still need God. Well, that's a good lesson. God has never left me. He's never failed me, and he's always saved me and provided for me. Look, I'm still alive. And you know what? I actually kind of enjoy when things fall apart and I can bring it to God and he just seems to take care of me. That's kind of amazing. That's kind of cool. I didn't realize I'd learned so much. It's, it's like nothing ever takes him by surprise or is too big for him to handle. And I kind of know that by experience now, not just esoterically by some idea. I've learned also that pain isn't the worst thing in the world. Stress isn't either. In fact, the one thing, one thing that through all the struggles and, that I've learned is that distance from my father is so much worse in my heart and more powerful than anything that I've ever come across. When I feel distant from the Lord, that is the hardest thing. When I know I'm wandering away from his presence and I spend days without really connecting with Jesus, that has become, in my life, the biggest and worst um, thing that I try to avoid. He wants me close to him, is what I would say is the lesson that we learn on the roundabout way. You know, if, if we just got everything, like everything was just laid out. Okay, little personal testimony time. When I graduated from Bible college, I thought I was uh, great. <laughs> I was prideful. And I didn't know how much I needed Jesus. And so I graduated, and I, my first job, uh, I thought maybe they would hire me to teach, you know, at, at the biggest church, you know, because I was just so excited about Jesus. But I go home to my little church in Greeley, and they're like, hey, we want to come in, and we're thinking about hiring you. And I'm like, great, you know, when's your last day? <laughs> and uh, they're like, no, 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 we want you to be the janitor. And I was like, oh. Okay, I'll do, I'll do. I know you got to start somewhere. But in my mind, you know what I was thinking? Just the first step, right? Then I'm going to work my way up, you know? And, and so I was a janitor, and then after a couple months, they're like, hey, why don't you start doing some youth Bible studies, you know, for the kids? And I was like, all right, great, you know, here it is, my plan in action. I am on the short route. I'm on the short route. And then they come in, and they're like, um, well, we're firing you after a year because they didn't have any more money, not because I did anything bad. But they're like, we're, we're letting you go. And I'm like, okay, bump in the short route. But that's okay. But not two days later, I was hired at a church in Colorado Springs to be the youth pastor at a big church of like 5,000 people. And I was like, oh, so I am on. I, I thought I was on the short route before. I am really on the short route. We just jumped over a big, um, I am so just right there in the promised land. And I'm, I work there, and I work there, and I work there, and things in my own life were eroding. And I wasn't able to spend time with Jesus the way that I should. And in my own life, my, on the outside, it looked like I was on the short route, but on the inside, it was falling apart. And so I know, and it did fall apart. It ended in horrific burn-it-all-down burn failure. Okay, And so I know in my life, the short route is awful. And I never want to go on the short route again. I want to stay close to my Father, to Jesus. And that's our lesson for today.
It's very simple. But I want you to see the last part of our text because it is really going to bless you about staying close to Jesus. So speaking of staying close, Moses took the bones of Joseph with him for Joseph had made the sons of Israel swear to do this. He said, God will certainly come and help you. And when he does, you must take my bones with you from this place. A great statement of faith by Joseph a couple hundred years earlier. The Israelites left Succoth and camped at Etham and the edge of the wilderness. And the Lord went ahead of them. He guided them during the day with a pillar of cloud and he provided light at night with a pillar of fire. And this allowed them to travel day by day or, or travel by day or by night. And the Lord did not remove the pillar of cloud or the pillar of fire from its place in front of the people. And I would put in parentheses, even though the people were dirty, rotten scoundrels. He didn't remove it. So Joseph here, he, he, we begin, Moses is telling us the story, and he says, Joseph said, God will certainly come help you. And they said, the Lord went ahead of them, and he guided them. And this describes the loving care of God, that he set up a pillar of cloud during the day and a pillar of fire at night. And it was probably the same pillar, but just during the day, it looked like cloud and brought them shade. And during the night, it was fire and brought them warmth, Okay. And so as we see this, it describes the loving care of God. It's why that worry and doubt, they keep us from God's best for our lives. Um, and it's why God demands our trust and faith. He's like, I'm going to provide for you. I'm gonna, you have to trust in me. So he gives them this pillar of cloud and a fire. And his, they were both his leading. They were both his direction in their life. And so if the cloud moved over here, you know what the people would do? They would move right under it, okay? And if the cloud moved over there, it doesn't matter if there's crazy lions or scorpions or snakes over there. You know what they're going to do? Go right under there. Why? Because the desert is hot. It is very uncomfortable. And they don't have air conditioners. They don't have anything. So this cloud literally was saving their life every moment of the day. And then at night, you know, deserts get very cold at night, and, uh, and there's wild animals and beasts, and, and this pillar of fire was protection and light for them at night. His leading looks very different at different times of the day or at different times of your life, but it's all about his presence. You know, if your big night light starts leaving in the middle of the night and God wants you to move over there, you're going to pack up and you're going to go along with it. And so this leading of God demonstrated in a way they could see and understand that his presence had to be the center of their life. Staying connected to God needed to be all that they worried about. Now look at some of the attributes of these different things. During, during the day, they, he brought them coolness from the hot sun. He wasn't a burden. Spending time with God wasn't like, oh, I got to do my devotions. It was like, this is cool. This is cool. This is right where I want to be. This is great. And then it brought them warmth and protection during the night. God isn't wanting to destroy you. He wants to protect you. And staying close to him is staying close to his protection. You know, I was, I was talking to someone one time, and, and, uh, and, and we were talking about someone who used to come to church, and they weren't coming to church anymore, and their life was just falling apart. And the comment was made, Boy, it seems like everyone who just 
flakes out on church and, and decides to not uh, spend time with the Lord, that things just seem to fall apart in their life. And I was like, yep, yeah, I see that. And you try to tell them, oh, it's so important. Stay close to Jesus. Stay, oh, I can do that up in the mountains. I can do that with, you know, by myself. I don't need you stinking church people. I don't need you Bible studies. I don't need nothing. I can do it. I don't know. Just never seems to work, right? All right, well, God's love encourages us to draw near and stay close to his presence. Now, listen, the unbelievers, they were afraid of God's presence. It's scary, you know, in the dark. Uh, his holiness is deadly. It looks like fire to them. It's like as hot as the sun. But, but to a follower of Jesus, the one who's really close to Jesus, it's, his presence is the only thing that matters in life. You just want to stay close and be close with him. So we said at the beginning that our lesson was that we need to stay close, like, like for dog walkers and for kindergarten walkers. Uh, you, you keep them close to you until they learn to remember all the things. You know, what things? Well, the main thing is to stay close. That's the main thing. And once you learn that, you can get the leash off and you'll just stay close anyway. You know? So take that into your week this week and stay close to the Lord. Uh, we're going to wrap it up with a song and communion. By doing this, Jesus says, we remind ourselves to stay close. And then I want to say, if you feel distant from the Lord, um, don't let that happen for one more second. It is one step back to Jesus at all times. So just draw near to him in faith, and I know everything inside you and everything the enemy is screaming at you saying, you can't draw near to God. They don't know what you've done and nobody knows what you've done. But God is saying here, saying, yes, draw near to me. It is open to you and I love you and I've done everything through Jesus that you need. So don't let one moment go by today where you're not drawing near and staying close to Jesus. Father, we, we come to you. We want to stay close to you. We pray that you would give us a new passion. Lord, help us to pour our lives out for your people and for the people of our city. And Lord, I pray if there's anyone in here that just feels distant from you, Lord, that they would be able to see in a spiritual way the uh, pillar of cloud and the pillar of fire standing before them in the presence of Jesus Christ. And God, I pray that... Uh, you would meet us in that cloud. We love you, Lord, and we need you more than we could ever possibly know. We need your training. We thank you for the long, uh, windy, roundabout ways that you lead us on. And we haven't always thanked you for them, and they are difficult sometimes, but Lord, we have learned to trust in you. We've learned that you are all that we need. So, Keep, please keep doing your work in our heart and in our life.